Please turn with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, we're going to read verses 6 through 10. It's on page 933 if you want to use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, it might have felt like it's been the um, holidays for quite a while now. It's certainly been cold and snowy enough, but it's finally here. You made it. It's Thanksgiving. Seems like it's late this year and we finally made it. Uh, we have a two-year-old at home, as some of you know. And one of the great things about Thanksgiving, Christmas, that time of year with the two-year-old, if you've had one in your house, is you get to experience it all through their eyes for the first time. Like, I'm kind of a Grinch. Christmas, it's great, it's fine. I mean, Jesus coming is wonderful. I love that part. But, you know, the Christmas tree, I've seen it. We've done it. I don't get that excited. But when my two-year-old woke up from his nap yesterday and saw the tree, he was excited. And yes, we put our tree up before Thanksgiving. We don't normally do that. Judge me if you will, but we did it. So we see things through his eyes for the first time. We get to introduce him to these kinds of things. But he also is introducing us to things or reminding us of things that it's like in your house when you have a two-year-old. And what I'm thinking of is the word mine. If you've had a two-year-old, it's one of their favorite words. He said it tonight at supper before I came over. And I said to him, I'm talking about you tonight in the sermon and saying how you say the word mine. And you're saying it right now before I even go over. Mine. He was looking at his bowl of food and he said, mine. And that's one of his favorite things to say, especially when he has friends over, someone else his age, and they want to, or they don't want to, they have the opportunity to share a toy. And they both say, mine. So I came across this joke about how two-year-olds think about property law, and it goes like this. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If I say it's mine, it's mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're having fun with it, it's mine. If you lay it down, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> now I bring that up because, oh, how I wish that we're only two-year-olds. <laughs> oh, how I wish we grew out of that. And while we might get more sophisticated about it, it's hard to outgrow it. It's hard to outgrow that attitude of grabbing and wanting and grasping for more and that little poem even gets at something that I think is one of the emotions that you and I feel sometimes more than any other, and that is discontentment. How prevalent is that in your heart as you go through your days and your weeks and your months? That feeling of, I need something else to be happy, to be satisfied, to be at peace. I don't have what I'm supposed to have, that feeling of discontentment. Well, the passage we're going to read tonight is like medicine for us when we're sick because we need this truth so much because I think discontentment is so obvious and present in all of our lives, myself included. So I just had you sit down. I'm not going to ask you to stand back up, but we are going to read from God's word. You can stand in your heart. How about that? No, sorry, you can keep your seat. <laughs> We're going to keep our seat tonight 
as we read God's word, but as we come to it, we come to it knowing our need and knowing how good God is to give it to us and how much we need these words. So this is God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, just as we said, we come to this knowing our need. We come to this already maybe with a growing sense of how, of how, of how discontentment works in our lives. And I pray, Father, that where it has a hold on me, that you would show me. I pray that where it has a hold on any of us, that you would show us, and that you would show us, we pray, your son Jesus, so that we might be thankful and grateful and content. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look tonight at two points. First, we're going to look at the danger of first we're going to look at the danger of discontentment and secondly at the gain of contentment. So first, the danger of discontentment. Now Paul says there is great danger and the ones in danger are those as verse 9 says who desire to be rich. And you might think, well that's not me. I don't need to be rich. I don't want to be rich. I don't need to have a billion dollars. I don't need to have five houses. I don't need to have a yacht. I don't need to have on and on and on. I'm fine the way I am, but we probably need to peel that back a little bit more because maybe while you don't want to be a billionaire, do you not find yourself wanting more? Just a little more. Just maybe enough so that you can retire when you're 65 and not have to worry if you live to 95. Or maybe at 62, that'd be nice too. Or maybe you need just a little bit more for your car. You don't have to have a Ferrari, but when your old clunker breaks down, man, do you not feel a little bit gypped sometimes when you look at those who have a newer car with a warranty and you think, I don't want to spend all this money on repairs. I just want a nicer, decent you know, nothing fancy kind of car. I don't have to be rich, but I need a little bit more. Maybe as you look around your house and you think, man, I wish I had a little bit more so I could fix what's outdated or fix what's broken or fix what I haven't liked for a long, long time, but the funds just aren't there. You see, sometimes though we don't have to be a billionaire, we want more. We think we need more and we can begin to fixate on how we don't have what we think we need. Or maybe your thinking goes like this. I don't have to be rich, but I just want enough so that if I have to spend money in one area, I have more than enough and plenty in every other area too. I just don't want to ever feel like there's not enough to go around. Because even if you're not tempted to be super rich, I think this warning of the danger of discontentment still is for you, and it certainly has been this week as I've looked at this passage for me as well. And maybe it's not money that turns your crank. Maybe you don't sit around thinking, I've got to have more money, but do you sit around and dream about that next great experience 
from, man, I wish I could just eat out more to, I can't wait for that next big vacation or I'll never get that big vacation like so-and-so gets to take or the next great adventure or for a lot of us, the gear to go on that great adventure. I'll go online and shop for that gear that I can't afford if I could go out and have those kinds of experiences. Or maybe it's not the experience, maybe it's looks. Maybe you're not satisfied with your appearance and you think, man, if I could upgrade that, I would do it, but I just can't. Or maybe you dream about having someone you could pay to do more of your work. Man, if I could pay someone to clean my house, I could be freed up to go do all these other things I want to do. And do you know what all those things have in common? Money can buy them. And maybe you don't dream about having more money, but you dream about having things money could get you. I would argue there's not much difference. That you're desiring to be rich, you're just having a slightly different dream about what that money could do for you. So all of us, I think, fall under Paul's warning, those who desire to be rich. If you look at your life carefully, you'll find it. Some of you, you look very financially prudent, and you are very financially responsible. Someone would look at you and say, they don't want to be rich. See how simply they live. But sometimes isn't that a cover for wanting to be rich? Isn't that the fruit of wanting to be rich? I want to be rich so I'm not going to spend. You see, the desire to be rich can show up in so many places. So Paul's warning about this danger has to be taken seriously for so many of us, even if you don't dream about the five houses and the private plane and the yacht. So where are you discontent? What is it you think you're supposed to have? that you don't have? What is it you think you need that you don't have? Anything more than food, shelter, and clothing. You think, I need that, and I'm being gypped that I don't have it. That's where you need to pay attention to what Paul is warning us about here. And I say this with compassion for all of us, because I think we could say we probably live in a time when it's harder to be content than any other time. And that's because we are the most advertised to and marketed to people in the history of the planet. There are people in our society with more experience and training and getting you to want things you don't have than there ever have been before. And now advertising can be good, not saying it's always wrong, but I'm saying there are people out there who want us to be discontent and they're good at it. And we don't even realize it sometimes, right? I think if when the history of our society is written, if it's not talked about how consumerism drives us, and by consumerism I mean I buy, therefore I am, that's consumerism. I buy and that makes me significant, worthwhile by what I own, then that history will be incomplete if it doesn't have that. I mean, just think about the next few days. If someone came and landed on our planet from Mars and said, oh, these people have a couple of days off, I wonder why they're taking a couple of days off. If they listened to our commercials, our radio, if they looked at our advertisements, if they looked at the things we're talking about and planning, would they guess that we have a couple of days off in order to remember how grateful we are for everything we've been given, or do we have a couple of days off to go shopping? 
Because even in our holidays now, it's taken over by this desire for more, this desire to have. So it's hard to be content in such a time and place. We are exposed to all the things all the time, and we are exposed to people enjoying all the things all the time that we don't have. And so we're constantly being fed this lie that you need this thing, you need these experiences to be satisfied, to be happy, to be complete. So we all have to pay attention to this in a day and time when we need it more than ever. But you still might ask, so what? So what if I want more that I can't have? Is it really that dangerous? What's really the problem with wanting more than we have, with the desire to be rich? Well, we could agree that being discontent just isn't any fun, first of all. I mean, have you ever had a better day because you were discontent? (laughs) Someone once said, of the seven deadly sins, the only one that isn't any fun is envy. And envy and discontentment, they're pretty closely related. Discontentment is a sin, but it's not any fun. It keeps us from enjoying what's right in front of us by making us miss what we don't have. But discontentment is far worse than just not being any fun and draining the life out of us. If you look at verses 9 and 10, I have to share with you some really somber warnings that Paul gives about the danger of discontentment. Verse 9 says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. I mean, he's saying the lack of contentment is like a gateway drug to worse sins. It opens you up to so much more. Because when you're not content and you're wanting more, then you become tempted to do more, to do more sin, to get those things. And it could be lying, it could be cheating, it could be compromising relationships, it could be ignoring relationships, to work more, to have more, to get the right things. It could be sacrificing being the right kind of person in order to get the things you want. I mean, if you think about it, can you think of a sin that doesn't have discontentment at its root? Discontentment leads to every kind of sin. Verse 9 gets even worse because it says that those who desire to be rich fall into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And now the senseless desires are pretty obvious if you think about it because when we want more and then we get it, are you satisfied? Did it work? Or do you just want more after that? Yes, you just want more. It doesn't work. It's senseless. It doesn't make any sense. Even though you've gotten things in the past that you thought you had to have to be content or had that experience or whatever it was, you got it, it still didn't work. I mean, that's what they say about being insane. It's doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And it's not just senseless, it's harmful. We think it's going to protect us from ruin and destruction. If I get more, I'll be protected from ruin and destruction. And Paul says, no, that's the very thing that leads you to ruin and destruction. And then verse 10 says that through this craving, many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It leads us away from God. It leads us away from the one person that can satisfy And the scary thing is all of this corrosiveness of discontentment works like rust, if you think about it. Rust works slowly and silently. And if you're not watching for it, 
whatever that rust is attacking will be gone and destroyed and useless. It'll be weakened. And that's exactly how discontentment works as well. It works like rust. That's why Jesus says in Luke 12, he says, take care and be on your guard. He says it twice. He must really mean this. Take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness, which is discontentment. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against discontentment, for your life does not consist in all your stuff. And you see, it's so destructive because what you do is driven by what you want. And what you want is driven by what you think is lovely and beautiful and good. In other words, your vision of the good life So think with me, not only where are you discontent, but why? What's your vision of the good life that you think, man, if I had that, then I would be content. Don't just ask what are you discontent about, but why are you discontent? What's that vision of the good life that you think you're missing out on? Because it's so dangerous. We have to identify. We have to take care and be on our guard because discontentment is so dangerous dangerous. But let's look secondly at the gain of contentment, the gain of contentment. Go back with me to verse six. Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And this verse always kind of made me question when I came across it. Why does he say godliness with contentment? is great gain. Because isn't godliness in and of itself gain? Why does he have to add contentment to? Well, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and Timothy's serving in a church, and Paul's like his mentor, and so he writes him a letter on some things he needs to know and do as he serves this church, because this church had been um, uh, false, false, uh, false teachers had come into this church that he was serving, and Paul has to let him know what to do. And these false teachers were coming in and they looked godly. They looked good. They acted good. But he says in verse five, just one verse before where we started, that they thought godliness was a means to gain. They thought godliness was a means to gain, probably financial gain. They're probably charging for their teaching. And this was something they did back then. They would go around and lecture, and these guys would charge sometimes a lot for their lecture. Paul says, I never charged for what I taught you. So these guys are coming in looking godly, and they're trying to profit off of God's word, as many people sadly have done throughout the years and still today, even with the health and wealth gospel. Now, Paul, it's interesting, says they imagine godliness is for gain, and he says, yes, He doesn't say, no, it's not for gain, but godliness with contentment. Because only if contentment is present are you seeking to be godly for the right reason. If you're not content while you're seeking to be godly, then maybe you're seeking to be godly for financial gain or for reputation or just so your life will be better, but you're not being godly for God. And that's really, really important when you think about godliness, is being godly for God. 
not godly for you, not godly for what you get out of it, whatever kind of gain that might be, but godly for God. That's why he adds contentment. And this is a word that in his day and age was used by the, by the Stoics, and they taught that happiness was found in accepting the moment as it comes to you. And you don't have to be controlled by the desire for pleasure or the fear of pain, but you're going to look inside yourself, they taught, and find the resources to take what comes and to be content or self-sufficient in that. Look inside yourself. Now, Paul takes that word that they used and he turns it on its head because he's not teaching these friends of his or this friend of his to look inside himself to find the strength for what he needs, but he's talking not about a self-sufficiency, but a Christ-sufficiency. And that's what he means when he uses the same word in a different verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me read this verse for you. He says there, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, that's the same word that's translated contentment here, so that having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul says godliness with contentment, having all that you need. You already have all that you need, he says, because you're not looking inside yourself for it. You have it, and it comes from Christ. It's not a self-sufficiency independent of circumstances, but it's a Christ-sufficiency independent of circumstances. And that means that in and of yourself, you don't have the resources to face the external challenges of life. Some people would say, look inside yourself. You have the resources to face these external challenges. The gospel is, no, you don't. I don't have the resources to face the external challenges regardless of what may come into my life. It means that in and of myself, I don't have the resources to face the internal challenges either. I don't have the resources when I look inside myself to handle my guilt. I don't have the resources when I look inside myself to handle my pride or my shame, or my selfishness. But it means that through Jesus and what he did and what he provides, I do have the resources to face external challenges come what may. I do have the resources to face the internal challenges because of my union with him, because my guilt has been canceled at the cross, because my shame has been dealt with, because my selfishness and my pride are being changed by him. It makes me think of what else Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There's a Christ sufficiency because in Jesus you're rich. Now your bank account might still be small, but you have the resources in Christ the richness that comes from him to face the external challenges, come what may, and to face the internal challenges that you have because of his grace as well. And we get those riches by grace. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 8 said in that verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't face those external and internal challenges by manning up. 
not meeting each challenge as it comes, not by facing down your sin, your guilt, your shame, and defeating them on your own, but by admitting you don't have the resources in and of yourself, but he does, and trusting him. And that's where you get the contentment and that sufficiency that Paul is talking about. Godliness with that sufficiency. It doesn't depend on external factors, It depends on Jesus, and he doesn't change. So the secret to understanding this passage and being free from those dangers that we talked about and experiencing the gain of contentment lies in Jesus, as it always does. The secret lies in Jesus, in what he gives us, in the sufficiency that we have in him. And like Paul says, when you combine that with godliness, it's great gain. We gain the joy of living like we're supposed to live, living in fellowship and communion with our Father because of his grace that he's made it there for us through the cross. By obeying him and living in a way that we were supposed to live, we gain the protection from those harms that we looked at in verses 9 and 10, and we gain that real life. You know, Jesus in Luke 12, remember he said that your life does not consist in how much you have but your life consists in him, in his love for you, in the meaning that he gives you, in the future that he gives you, in the redemption that he gives to you. That's life. That's godliness with contentment. That's great gain, not just gain, but great gain. And that's what each Christian has. Each one of you has this. And you think, okay, great, I have it. Now I want to live like I have it because I'm living in discontentment. I'm living and I'm not happy, I'm not satisfied. So how do we live like that? How do we gain in our contentment, in our experience of contentment? Well, first we need an eternal perspective like Paul has in verses seven and eight, when he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And the word for clothing there probably means shelter too, if we have covering. So if we have food, shelter, and clothing, with these we'll be content. Because of this eternal perspective that you didn't bring anything into the world, and guess what? You're not taking anything out either. You're leaving the same way you came, with nothing in your hands at all. It's like the old story about, um, and I came across it this week, uh, someone who went to a funeral for a very wealthy lady and the curious asked the pastor afterwards, how much did she leave behind? And he says, all of it. (laughs) Every last penny. That's what she left and that's what we're all going to leave. It's like Paul is saying, since this is true, you might as well go ahead and live this way. It was true for the most poor. It was true for the most rich. It was true for Henry Ford. And a story I've shared with you here in the past, but it fits here so well. Henry Ford, everyone knows who he is, even though he died in 1947. His name is on many of the cars you drove here tonight. The Ford family. He struck it rich when he made the Model T. And when I say struck it rich, he struck it rich. He was one of the wealthiest people in the world, and he decided he needed a mansion to fit his wealth. And so he's going to build a mansion. He names it Fairlane, which if you know cars, that's where the name of the Ford Fairlane came from. So he buys himself 1,300 acres 
on a river there in Detroit and begins to build his house, Fairlane. The house itself cost $40 million in today's money. That doesn't count the land, that doesn't count the furniture, that doesn't count the landscaping. And when I say landscaping, there was a rose garden with 10,000 plants in it. There was a farm that was child-sized for his grandchildren. It was to scale. It was a child-scale farm. There was staff buildings, a man-made lake, a gatehouse, a pony barn, a skating house, a greenhouse, a Santa's workshop for those same grandkids in case they got bored at the farm. Agricultural research facilities, because why not? 55 rooms, 31,000 square feet, and 550 light switches. Now, why do I say light switches? Because Ford did not want to trust the public utility grid. He wanted to be on his own. So why not throw in another three million to make your own power plant there on the river? And he did. And it ran perfectly and flawlessly for years until one night in 1947, with heavy rains coming down, The river rises higher than it ever had into the power plant, snuffs out the turbines, and the power fails. That's the same night that Henry lay dying in his bed, 87 years old, and he left the world the same way he came in, in a cold house lit by candles. For all that he had, he went out the same way because all of us will, no matter our wealth. So take that eternal perspective. Those things that you think you have to have and say, they're not gonna last. Tell yourself the truth. These things aren't going to last. And so you can be content with food, clothing, and shelter. And to be free from the danger of discontentment, experience that gain of contentment. We also need to practice being thankful. There's that word. You've been waiting all night for it. It's a sermon on Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving Eve, and he hasn't even said thankfulness yet. There it is. I said thankfulness. And the reason I bring it up now is because thankfulness is a means to an end, and the end is contentment. By practicing thankfulness, you gain contentment. And I use that word practice on purpose because it is something you have to practice because we're not naturally good at it. We don't naturally think, what should I be grateful for? Who should I be grateful to? How can I express that thankfulness? But thanksgiving is how we get to contentment and the gain of it. And sometimes to be thankful, we have to just cut certain things out of our life. You do have to think about how the ads you see and hear, what they mean. Because so often we're just receiving these ads. We're not thinking about them. We're not thinking about, what are they selling? How are they selling it? Is what they're promising true? Will that thing really give me that? We're just taking it all in. Instead, we need to be thinking and asking questions. We need to be awake and alive to these things. We need to teach our kids to be critical of the ads that they see and hear, to say, what are they selling? How are they selling it? Will that thing give me what it says it will give me? So we need to be critical about the ads we see in our life. But then we also maybe need to spend some less time on Facebook for crying out loud. Because there's more and more research being done about social media. And it's finding a lot of the same stuff, a few different things. But so far, there's not been one study that says more time on social media makes you more grateful. There's just not. Do you know why? Because it doesn't. Because when you're on there, it's people putting up the best pictures that they have of doing things that you don't have, and they're having a blast doing it. And so maybe to be more grateful, you need to cut certain things or cut back on certain things. And then to be more thankful, you just have to simply practice it. Like I said, maybe 
tomorrow, I encourage you to do this, to be as practical as this. Take out your smartphone, set a timer for one minute, and try to do nothing but to spend time thanking God for what you have in Christ. Spend time thanking God for your physical blessings. Maybe go for a walk. Try to spend 20 minutes on a walk. I've done this a few times, and it's hard. I'm not going to do anything but talk to God about things I'm thankful about. Try that. It's a blast and it's hard, both at the same time, but find something really practical to do to practice that thankfulness. And lastly, I just want to encourage you that progress in this is possible. Some of us are really in the grip of discontentment, and you know the pain, and you know the life drain that comes from it, and you need hope that you can make progress. Paul elsewhere in Philippians 4 says that he has learned how to be content no matter the situation, whether he's well-fed or whether he's hungry, whether he has everything or whether he has nothing. And I love that he says, I learned it, because that means at one time he didn't know it, that at one time he probably struggled with this and he made progress just like we can. And then he says, but he knows a secret He knows a secret. And then he says, I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. And we love to quote that verse. I can do everything through Jesus who gives me strength. But we forget that in context, the thing that we can do in Jesus is be content. The thing he gives us strength to do is to be content. Because the secret of it all is captured in this quote that I love. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Because we can think all day long, man, if I could change this or that circumstance, then I would be content. No, the secret is Christ in us. That's the whole sermon in the one quote. I could have just said that and been done a whole lot faster. You see, we're discontent when we think that the change in circumstances brings contentment. But if we're not content with what we have, we won't be content when we get what we want. But if we know that in Christ we have the resources to face all those external and internal challenges, then we can be content with food, shelter, and clothing. So take time to practice that thanksgiving. Take time to cultivate that. Take time talking to God about what you're thankful for that he's given you spiritually, physically, and in every way. And then take those things he's given you and enjoy them. He's a good father, and he gave us good gifts to enjoy. Enjoy those gifts. Be generous with those gifts. Hold them with an open hand, knowing that in Christ you have all you'll ever need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how this passage points us to the riches that we have in Christ. Thank you for his grace that though he was rich beyond anything we can imagine, He became poor beyond anything that we can imagine so that we could become rich in the most meaningful way possible. Thank you that our riches do not consist in anything that we cannot take with us when we go, but our riches are those that we will have always and forever in you. Thank you that they last. I pray that you would deliver us from discontentment and give us the contentment that we can find in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.